after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. Now we're in Luke 1, verse 61. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were asking all about these things. Everyone who heard about this, wonder, heard, heard about this wondered about it, asking, what then? Is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. And so that is the title of our sermon this morning. What will this child be? Well, for every one of us, as as, as we were born, whoops. Every one of us, when we were born, our parents wondered the same thing about you. And for every one of us, there were huge aspirations, I'm sure, as, as any parent would have for, for any child. You know, as I contemplate my, my 50th birthday that, that is uh, coming upon me here tomorrow, it was an interesting time because it was, it was just a, a couple days after the Kennedy assassination, and then I was born during the, the burial in the Arlington Cemetery and in that whole uh, scene there. But, but I do remember my, my parents... Uh, sharing with me how they wondered what it was that I would be. And from the youngest age, my dad would, would always kind of get down and, and whisper these like affirmations into my ear all the time. You know, kind of like deep thoughts from Jack Handy, except they were, you know, just, just kind of giving them to me. You're, you're smart enough, you're good enough, and darn it, people like you. You know, I, I don't think I understood any of that at the age of three days. But... But nonetheless, this, this was, you know, a part, of, part of their aspirations. And, you know, and even as I, I grew older, things actually came rather easy for me, maybe too easy for me throughout my, my younger years and throughout my childhood, whether it was academics or sports or art or, or different areas. And, and I remember my parents and my grandparents and relatives all really wondering, wow, what's, what's going to become of, of Edvardas? That's my... Lithuanian name. Uh, I was we're an immigrant family. My, my mom came over on the boat with, with her grandparents, and so they all went, what, what, what would be of, of this child? And, and, and so off I went to college, and I, and I went to a, a good college, but their hopes for me were really sadly squandered. Because as I entered into college, and I had every advantage, I really did, I had every advantage uh, to be able to go to an Ivy League school, to, to, to have, you know, just even some, some basic gifts. And then I began to completely squander, as I said, all, all what God had allowed for me to experience. And I found alcohol. I found distractions. I found a deep well of selfishness that was probably unparalleled among most of the people that I even knew. And everything that I thought was maybe such a gift, I turned into a nasty avenue for greater and greater darkness in my life. And then 
as I began to squander things, and you know, my grades weren't the same as they used to be, and you know, mediocrity kind of began to just cling to me during, during those times because I invited it into my life, you know, then I began to feel even more empty. And the only thing that I felt like I could do really well then at that point was to go out and party and to be able to socialize and maybe meet girls and be even stupider when I was drunk than the, than the next guy. And, and for a moment, it seemed to give me a bit of a sense that I was really living. But I always had to wake up the next morning or afternoon, as it usually turned out to be, having slept through class and now wake up to look at myself and think, wow, what is it that this child has become? And to have a deep sense of shallowness and to realize that I had no integrity in my soul. That the only guidepost or the only compass setting that I had to guide my life was simply, how can I serve my own base selfish desires? And I would find different ways of doing that over and over and over again. And, and so it continued, you know, throughout my life and wondering what, what could actually help me out of this. I tried different attempts to be a man of a bit more substance because that's what really I, th I think really got to me is that I was not a man of substance. You scratch the surface and there's nothing there. And so I would try church and I would try to go to different, you know, Bible studies that churches would offer. And, you know, the most that I ever felt like there was some sort of a spiritual connection is that, you know, when the presiding priest or minister would say, turn to the person next to you and greet them, I was like, oh, wow, I did that. I, I shook hands and said, peace be with you and also with you. And, but that was it. And, and, and sadly, I thought, well, maybe I'm, I'm making some sort of progress. But where there was nothing much more than shallow affirmations with a, a religious bow around it, it then allowed me to somehow justify a little bit that, well, I'm making some sort of religious effort and at the same time still leading that shallow life of selfish craving desire really being the only thing that I was really intent and earnest at trying to fulfill. And so I continued down that path. And ultimately, this child I had become as people coined the term during the, the 80s and 90s, I had become the empty suit. And I was a shell of a man at best. And I knew it. And that was the worst part about it. I would try to cover it up with bravado, but there was no amount of bravado that could really cover that up when I was left with myself and my own thoughts. Or even worse, my attempt not just to give a token prayer, of thank you God for this wonderful day, uh, help me to get good sleep and uh, wake up and have a good day tomorrow. As, you know, probably half our kids pray, right? Every day. Uh, but, but in those moments where I thought I would really try to connect in prayer, I realized I can't even, I can't even do this. How am I going to do this with, with what it is that I've just done and what it is that I know around the corner I really am going to do? despite the fact that I could try to fake myself out here for a moment in prayer. And, and never did I realize that there would come an intervention that would change all of that 
and all of that radically. And the intervention wasn't going to come through some sort of Jack Handy affirmation. It wasn't going to come through self-improvement. It wasn't going to come through the stack of self-improvement books and self-actualization books that I was reading trying to advance myself. No, it didn't come through any of those things. It was only going to come through what God provides right here. God provides a prophet. And when they wonder, what will this child be with regards to Zechariah's son? This child was going to be the greatest of all prophets. Exactly what I would need. And as we look at the passage, it's interesting that John is put into silence for, I'm sorry, I keep saying John, Zechariah, the dad here. The dad is put into silence for nine months. And in nine, and that silence comes about because of his faithlessness. Gabriel, the angel, affirms to him that this is going to be, you're going to have a son. Your wife, though advanced in age, is going to have a son. And yet, he doubts. And there's a bit of a small story there that represents the bigger story. And what is the bigger story? That all of God's people, all of Israel, has experienced silence as well. Their silence, however, has been for 400 years. Why? Because instead of being vibrant people of God, they became shallow, religious, duplicitous hypocrites. They knew how to show up for church. They knew how to say God is good all the time and all the time God is good. They looked good when the stained glass was shining upon them, but take away that light and suddenly you see them in the raw light of day and they didn't look so good. And so they were plunged into a darkness and a silence for 400 years. And it's no wonder that Zechariah was perhaps a bit faithless, having been oppressed now by the great Roman Empire, wondering how it was that this yoke of oppression could finally be thrown off. And then, as his son is born, and the fulfillment of all the prophecies are brought about, this son, who normally the parents would name, it is the privilege that God gives us as parents to be able to name the child, but in this case, God through the angel Gabriel said, no, this child's name is not going to be Zechariah Jr. This child's name is going to be John. John, which is an abbreviation of a Hebrew idea, meaning a gift from Jehovah. A gift from God. And interestingly, what is it that John the Baptist is known for? He's known for being the prophet that brings repentance. The prophet that preaches repentance that changes our course, what greater gift could there be? Because the solution for our sins is not affirmation. It's not pat on the back, but it's to be able to deal with it fully and clearly. And so as John is born and he is named by God rather than by the parents, it's the recognition that this child is especially commissioned by God as the fulfillment of all the prophets that came before him. As a matter of fact, when Jesus speaks of John, he says he would be no less than the greatest of all God's prophets. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. 
Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and forceful people lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John appeared. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. The one who has ears better listen in Matthew 11. And so John now completes the work of all the prophets to this point. And he does so by being able to be the voice of God to the people. And the silence is about to be broken. And what is it that is so special about this child? Well, number one, he is the one that will break the silence. As I mentioned, 400 years of prophetic silence. Now broken and as God brings the voice of one calling in the wilderness, the voice of John the Baptist, the anticipation of all of that, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, also prophesies, verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. A horn of salvation kind of either refers to a kind of a clarion call of salvation or even of a strong person. It, it refers to either of those ideas as a Hebraism. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he has said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then Zechariah looks to his child, newborn babe, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. It's kind of like a Lion King moment, right? <laughs> you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew, became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. And so, he is that. You, my child, will be a prophet. A prophet of the Most High. And with regards to this, what is a prophet? What is prophecy? It's words that we could throw around, but sometimes we think it always just means to be able to foretell the future events. But that, in fact, was not the primary work of a prophet. One of the great books on biblical interpretation that many of you actually probably have even read is Fee and Stewart's book, and it's How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And I like what they write with regards to a prophet, because they tend to look at prophets as those that already know this covenant that has been mentioned here. 
to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to Abraham. What do the prophets do? They remind us of the covenant we have with most holy God. Let me read from Fee and Stewart's book. To see the prophets as primarily predictors of future events is to miss their primary function, which was to speak for God to their own contemporaries. The prophets were covenant enforcement mediators, or as I like to call them, the CEA, covenant enforcement agents. Israel's law constituted a covenant between God and his people. The covenant contains not only the rules to keep, but describes the sorts of punishments God will necessarily apply to his people if they don't keep the law, as well as all sorts of benefits he will impart to them if they do. God doesn't merely give his law, he also enforces it. Positive enforcement, blessing. Negative enforcement, curse. This is where the prophets come in. God announced the enforcement, positive and negative, of his law through them, so that the events of blessing or curse would be clearly understood by his people. So nobody was wondering, oh, why'd that happen? Oh, cool, why'd that happen? The prophets made it clear that this all ties back to the covenant. Bear in mind that the prophets didn't invent the blessing or curse they announced. They may have worded these blessings and curses in novel, captivating ways as they were inspired to do so. Through them, God announced his intention to enforce the covenant for benefit or for harm, depending on the faithfulness of Israel, but always on the basis of and accordance with categories of blessing and curse that were already contained in the law Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 28 through 32. So you don't need to be able to predict future events in order to serve as a prophet of God. Their primary function was not to foretell the truth, but as Fee and Stewart say, forthtell the truth, or to lay forth the truth plainly of real And, and it, it isn't actually some great leap of um, future event prediction to be able to say, God has said in his word, if you do this, you will be blessed. So guess what? Do this and you'll be blessed. I mean, that's in a sense the core of what the prophets say. And then on the flip side, if you disregard that, there's going to be curses. So if you disregard that, you're going to be cursed. And that is exactly in their fidelity to the covenant what the prophets came to say. But here's the power of it, is that we need to recognize that to be anything less than clear with both consequences of living for God is to be a false prophet. And we don't actually help ourselves or anyone else by trying to take the edge off and trying to appeal to a culture of self-esteem. Jeremiah 23 says, regarding the prophets, the Lord who rules over all the people of Israel says, do not listen to what those false prophets are saying to you. They are filling you with false hopes. They are reporting visions of their own imaginations, not something the Lord has given them to say. They keep on saying to those who reject what the Lord has said, things will go well for you. They say all those who follow, they say to all those who follow the stubborn inclinations of their heart, nothing bad will happen to you. That's a dangerous place to end up, but it is an easy place to end up because all our culture is trying to push us in that direction 
that if you could just be affirmed, you're good enough, you're kind enough, and darn it, God likes you. That doesn't seem to go well together as a phrase, really, but... (laughs) That is always going to be our temptation, to want to hear that and to want to say that. But if we're going to be people of the book, people with fidelity to the covenant, we've got to resist that push of our culture and be inspired by John, realizing that God has broken the silence, not with empty platitudes of affirmation, but with the clarion call, the horn of salvation, the clear message of what it is to turn back to the Lord. And the only way we're really going to be helped is to really be turned back to the Lord through a prophetic work of someone that really does love God and actually love us. The Bible says in Deuteronomy, as the covenant is established, when you worship gods made by hands, wood, stone, that neither see, hear, eat, nor smell. But if you will seek the Lord, your God, from there, you will find him. If indeed you seek him with all your heart and soul. In your distress, when all these things happen to you in the latter days, if you return to the Lord your God and obey him, he's a merciful God, he will not let you down or destroy you. For he cannot forget the covenant with your ancestors that he confirmed by oath to them. That's Deuteronomy 4 at the end of the chapter. God has made a depth of a covenant with us in the blood of Jesus Christ. He has done that. Why? Because he wants a reconciled relationship with us. But in order for us to appreciate the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, we need to see it not as an empty affirmation, but as a solution for the very sins that have plunged us into the mess where we are. And to recognize that when this silence is broken, the other thing that happens beautifully by the prophets is that the darkness will be pierced. Psalm 117 speaks of sitting in darkness. It says, Some sat in darkness, in utter darkness, Prisoners suffering in iron chains because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the Most High, so he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled and there was no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness, the utter darkness, and broke away their chains. I felt that darkness. And how was that darkness ultimately pierced? How was that emptiness finally identified and filled because a prophet came into my life. A prophet that held to the word of God. Someone that was willing to sit down, open the Bible, share his life, share his love, look me in the eye and let me know that the sin in my life has emptied me of everything that was meant to be in my life. And why do I sit in darkness? Because I decided to reject the covenant that God had made with me and instead pursue the cravings of my own selfish flesh. And in doing so, darkness came upon me to a greater and greater degree. But that darkness was not eternity. 
That darkness was not my destiny. And darkness is not your destiny either as you sit here right now. I don't know if, if you're just trying to figure out things with Jesus right now or whether you've been in a relationship with Jesus only like Israel to compromise on it. Half step by half step. Until finally, there's such a pile of compromises that all you can think is the best way I can manage this is to keep a lid on it. To keep it in the darkness. That's where Satan wants you to be. That's where Satan has leverage on you, is in that darkness. And I know, I know that place. And in that darkness, the only moments where you can somehow feel some source of joy is to actually align yourself with even greater darkness. Maybe manufacture some chemical fun or some abusive fun along the way. That's all that there will be, and it's fleeting, and off it goes. What needs to happen is the lid needs to be taken off of our lives and allow the light to pierce the darkness. It's what prophets do. It's what John the Baptist did. And as he began to preach, and we'll read it later in Luke 3 when we study that, as he began to preach, it was as though a bright light came shining from heaven into the darkness of our lives. But we don't like the light. John 1 tells us that. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men hated the light. And they loved the darkness for fear that their deeds would be exposed because we loved our dark deeds. But if all we want to do is protect and manage our ability to somehow indulge in these dark deeds, the rest of our life will only be a series of slippery slope downward steps into deeper and deeper despair. I know. But only when a prophet dealt with my wounds thoroughly, exposed what needed to happen with the word of God and with love. And And I pray that if you've got somebody that knows the word of God and you know that they probably aren't maniacs, that they actually do love you, they actually do want nothing but the best for you, is invite this into your life. It's no fun for a moment, for a brief moment, however. But what comes right after that is deliverance. What comes right after that is what Zechariah prophesies. To give people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven and shine on those, even those living in darkness. You know, God grieves over children who sit in darkness without peace. Our failures to repent don't madden him. They sadden him. And because of tender mercy, it says here, He sends prophets to point our way home. You can still go home again. Thanksgiving is coming. It's a time where a lot of us go home again. And what's waiting for you at home, in some cases, is quite disturbing. And you wonder, can I really go home again? 
Now, it may be your grandparents, your parents, your kids, your relatives that make this homecoming something less than joyful. Well, it's not as though you can control those people. But this homecoming, this homecoming of thanks that is given to us here, is one in which you go home to God. A merciful God. Not some sort of capricious God who changes with whim. But a God who is steadfast, loves righteousness, loves you, and wants nothing more for you to be a man or woman of substance again. To have integrity through your very soul. To have steel in your spine morally again. To be able to stand as a man or a woman. To live a life of significance. To no longer be blown about by by every wind of culture or of peer pressure. But instead to have the life that you were reborn to live. To be the child that God always had in mind for you to be. What sort of child will this be? I pray a child of God. A child reborn by Jesus Christ. To go home is to repent. It's through tears that the prophets thunder against my selfishness. While weeping, the prophets name my sins. One after another. And through trembling hands of care, they turn me back to the direction of God. I resist it, but once I see it and take that first step, God rushes to me as he does to you. Throws his arms around you, kisses your neck, puts a robe on your back and a ring on your finger, calls all together to be able to celebrate. Let me plead with you all today. You know, as you think about homecoming and Thanksgiving and all that's coming our way, let it likewise be some small story of the greater story that God wants to work in your life right now. The greater story of being able to go back home the home you are always meant to have, a home of substance, a home of integrity, a home of moral fiber, a home of peace, a home of a future, a home that will allow you to know the depth and the fullness of what it is that God has always had in store for you. This is who you were reborn to be. This is your identity. This is who you are. God is letting us know. Praise God. Come on, brother. We're going to sing Encourage My Soul.